Hey, listeners, this is DJ Blackout. You've been listening to Radio Blackout. Thank you for staying tuned in our Hollows Eve-inspired set. Um, up next, we have a pre-recorded taping of Living Writers with T. Hetzel featuring author Laura Kashishki. So do stay tuned to that. After that, we have Free Speech Radio News, a taped version of Closets Are For Clothes, The Saruman Show, The Local Music Show, and The Hardcore Show with Aaron, which will take you into your late night broadcasting. We have a great, great block of programming coming up, so please stay tuned to 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. As always, this is DJ Blackout saying thanks for listening to Radio Blackout. And keep it locked to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. for tuning in. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. And today on the program, Laura Kasishki is here with me, joining me in the studio. I'm so pleased to see you, Laura. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) It's great um, to see you. And your latest novel, um, you're going to be reading November 3rd at Borders on Laura Road um, near Target. Yes. Um, and, And your latest novel is In a Perfect World. Um, so you can go out on November 3rd to Borders to, to hear Laura read some of that in person. Um, and without further ado, I will read a short bit from uh, your, your biography on the book. Laura Kasishki teaches in the University of Michigan MFA program and the Residential College. She has published seven collections of poetry and seven novels. She lives with her family in Chelsea, Michigan. So just around the corner. Not too far. <laughs> Not too far. Um, so, Laura, uh, let's start. Um, we'll hear a little bit um, from the book a little bit later in the program. Um, but let's talk about your your um, like your your writing life. Like you write, you're you're so prolific. So, what's your method? Like, are you um, are you ever sleeping? <laughs> yeah, well, I sleep a good deal. <laughs> um, yeah, I really I just try to write every day. I don't write every day, uh, I, and I don't have a whole lot of time to write. But if one keeps writing every day at a steady pace, it tends to accumulate. I'm pretty disciplined once I. Um, I'm in the midst of a project, so I I tend to, I mean, I think maybe I underestimate how much time it is I'm actually spending writing at some junctures just because I've gotten so involved in a project. But and other, does time just pass then, so you're not passes, even aware? Well, like when, when it's going sitting, well, yeah. <laughs> when it's not going well, time doesn't pass very quickly. Um, uh, but I just uh, really, for me, it's all been not so much the 
daily grind, I certainly don't spend eight hours a day or even four hours a day or even three hours a day writing, but it's been a matter of doing it regularly, sticking with a project, stay, you know, staying the course, writing every day, even when it's a very busy day or when I'm traveling or uh, on the weekends, that sort of thing. Has there ever been a time when you lapsed somehow so you weren't writing every day and you saw, did that make an imbalance in your your writing life or in your life or like what what happened or did you just stop writing for a while and that that's why you think you know it's important to just keep the keep the torch lit (laughs) well it does it still happens occasionally where I'll get too busy or there will be something going on or I'm uh, you know away from home that sort of thing and I um, get away from the writing and I do find it's it's that the amount of time that it takes to get back to it is not worth the 10 minutes a day that it would take even on a bus or uh, to, to sit down and Because it's something, something about the, the mindset then <laughs> when you're exactly. saying it's like the time it takes to get back to it. Um, it so, so it seems like, like, what does that take? Well, it just takes me, uh, as I said, it's just a... Uh, it's sort of getting out of the routine of it. Going back to it is harder than staying with it. Um, I do find that if I if I stop, if I break the chain or whatever, <laughs> and I stop writing for a while, uh, I, I lose the discipline. And I, and also whatever it is I'm working at the uh, on at the time, I have to go back. I have to get back into the mindset of it. And sometimes I never do. So I just I try never to stop. I try. To, to to write every day or at least look at what I've written the day before or, or have some part of my life every day that brings me back to the writing. That's concerned with it because so then there are some projects that you actually, because there was some time passed that you just, they, they sort of languish, languished because you lost some sort of, I don't know, like the direction of it or yeah. or like feeling like there was meaning for even yeah. doing it or... Yeah, or a kind of energy or interest or to, or really just being able to remember what it, what it was that was interesting to me or a sense of atmosphere or something that had engaged me. If I don't get to it every day, I lose it. It's, uh, I mean, it's not that different than my reading life. When I am reading something and I put it away and I don't come back to it for a week, really it's like starting it all over again. And um, I, staying consistent has been... Has I mean, if I've, if I have been prolific, I don't know where I am in, you know, relationship to other people. <laughs> You're pacing, but if I right? Have been, um, in relation to Joyce Carol Oates. <laughs> no, I'm not very prolific then. Uh, then I, uh, it's because of consistency is all not really, I don't log a certain number of pages a day or anything like that. I just try to write every day. And because just since we're talking about it, I'll read some of your titles, Laura, so so everyone can uh, get a sense of this. So so you're you you don't discriminate. You're a fiction writer and a poet. And so the fiction list reads as follows: Feathered, Be Mine, Boy Heaven, The Life Before Her Eyes, Movie, <laughs> White Bird in a Blizzard, and Suspicious River. And then poetry, the titles are Lilies Without, Gardening in the Dark, Dance and Disappear. What It Wasn't, Fire and Flower, Housekeeping in a Dream, Wild Brides. Um, 
So the so the poetry is winning at the moment. Yes, uh, I hope it always will. <laughs> Champ the fiction a little. Um, wait, why will why will the poetry always win? Oh, I, just, oh, I, don't, I consider myself primarily a poet, and I like to write poetry the most. I value it the most highly. So, and, and you've just won the the Guggenheim, um, or well, I shouldn't say just won, but I just found out about it uh-huh. from reading uh, yes, for uh-huh. two thousand nine for this year. Yes, uh-huh. Congratulations! I'm sure everybody probably knows about it. I seem to always. I'm gardening in the dark when the awards come out. Um, has that changed anything, uh, winning, winning that, Laura? Or well, what is it's it? it's a huge honor. And, of course, the support never hurts. It made me feel good about the work that I'm, I'm doing right now. And because also, it's for poetry. This, yes. Well. Uh-huh, yeah. And, I, and I'm taking this year off. So uh, the, the relief from teaching and other duties has given me more time to write. So oh wow so so your writing schedule is much different this year than it has been yes. in uh-huh. probably years. Yes, it really is. Yeah. Are you able to are, be so so are you able to carve out that time still? It's like or is it do you find that a lot of your time is devoted to the writing now or is it still 10 minutes on the bus sometimes? Cuz you know how you well I'll say I sometimes you have this dream like if you get like a Guggenheim or like any A or some sort of grant then you think well all day you could be <laughs> writing but that's sort of a pressure as well like uh, i don't know Do you- well i don't know this month has been odd because i've been on book tour so i've just been traveling a lot and doing a lot of things that i, I would never ordinarily be doing anyway so it hasn't felt like a ton of extra time um but it's much more time than i would have had otherwise so i am i am man, i am I'm getting writing done, and the book tour is almost over. And uh, I've been—I think I've been writing things that I wouldn't otherwise have written. I've been writing some sort of strange little short stories that uh, came to me. I think because I had more time and space, and I've been reading. Uh, that's one thing that's been important too: is that my reading life. Sometimes that's the thing that goes. And I've always said, and. Uh, sheepishly sometimes because I wasn't doing it but that I think writers should be spending a lot more time reading than they do writing and but writing's often the first thing that has to go for me so I've been doing a lot more reading and that's been nice and I think it's inspired some new kinds of writing I was going to ask you that sort of thing (laughs) some risks and 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 that was possible in the the framework of the short story Laura or what do you mean by Uh, risks well I say they're sort of short prose pieces I don't know what they are (laughs) right now but they're strange notebook and they're a little different but I was kind of pleased with them so and I'm not all I don't always feel that way about my writing and I always feel like oh that's new and interesting sometimes it feels like oh here we go flogging this horse again (laughs) so with the does it feel that way more with the novels if you're or wait no that's I that was poorly put what I meant was like with the novel that seems to encompass such such a longer time commitment so maybe for example within a perfect world how long did it take you to actually write this latest novel Laura two years I think um, for the first draft or or for the revision and uh, how does included the revision I think the first draft took almost exactly a year and um, it was a very long and a big mess and quite different, I hope, than the uh, final version because it did take a year to revise it. So it's just a really different process than writing brand new things or sort of discrete objects like a poem or a, a story or a small prose piece. Um, writing, no, I don't feel. Um, dragged down or burdened by writing <laughs> novels or anything like that but I do it is uh 
it's, I mean, I guess it's a little, you know, as they describe childbirth, that you forget <laughs> the pain after a while. You forget the process of writing now. I really couldn't reconstruct how how it was. I. I revised this novel or when it was I did it or, or what. Because it's not like you have like, dear diary, today I began a novel, no, which I uh-uh. think I'm going to call. No, and I look at one. the old files on the computer and they're almost unrecognizable from anything that ended up in the novel. And I think, where was I going? Where was I going at that point? <laughs> what was I thinking I was doing at that time? So I don't know. Um, Do you write all the way through, Laura, with the with In a Perfect World? Did you just write out a story? Or it sounds like there were many directions that could have been taken. So does is it just dictated by then the day you sit down something might have shifted or I almost always it hasn't always worked out this way sometimes I couldn't and had to go back and start over again because I hit a brick wall or or realized that something needed to be radically different midway through a draft but ideally I finish a draft um, before I start revision I have a beginning and a middle and an end and then I start over again and reshape it and cut and add and that sort of thing but I um it's happened a couple times where I couldn't do that. I got to the middle and thought, oh, you know, the whole point of view has to be changed or something like that. So, um, but that's... What year What year were you, what, what year did you start writing In a Perfect World, like a ballpark? Because I guess, do you want to, it's very timely now because it, it deals with a pandemic. Right. <laughs> and so actually when I was reading your novel um, uh, over uh one of the weekends, Laura, I was sort of um, almost in this because it was right when NPR, like almost every other thing on NPR was about H1N1. And so I thought, oh, crikey. Yeah. So when when did you decide, like, do you want to tell a little bit well, about the novel? It must have been 2006, it, 2007 okay. that I started it. That's, you know, I'd have to get off the calendars, which I won't do right, <laughs> right now. <Yeah>. But <laughs> it was well before swine flu. I really had bird flu in mind, I think, um, at the time. Uh, the I already had the galleys before spring hit with the swine flu, so that's been coincidental. That was strange. Did you feel any sort of weird, um, like, whoo, am I a prophet? Sort of, well, not, <laughs> no, well, not so <laughs> A prophet sits before me, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? No. No, I didn't think that, uh, but it was odd because I think it was in the spring. I had just gotten the the galleys, the bound galleys, and they were in my purse, actually. I needed to to read them and get back to my editor, and my son was supposed to go on an exchange trip to Japan, and it was canceled because of the swine flu, because of quarantines, and because they didn't want to let American kids in at that point because, you know... And all of these things are sort of in the novel, the quarantine, not that this was at all an anti-American sentiment. It was just, you know, fear, fears of flu spreading as much to our kids as to Japanese kids. So um, that's not exactly it. But uh, it was eerie. And I remember thinking I was in this group of parents that if I raised my hand and said, I have a novel that I've just written all about this, <laughs> they would think I was lying. <laughs> so, right, right. <laughs> or suddenly turn, like, be very angry. Right. You know? Know? So that's been a coincidence. <laughs> Oh well, it's an amazing one. Um, and and uh, well, maybe what we can do, we'll take a short break, Laura, and then when we come back, will you read us a, a short section? Sure. And uh, maybe from the the beginning and we set us up. Okay, you're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Laura Kasischke, her book In a Perfect World. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. You've got living writers today on the program. Laura Kosischke, her latest, a novel, In a Perfect World. Um, so, Laura, would you mind uh, reading a little bit for no. us? This will be a preview for the Borders reading, oh, okay. um, November 3rd. Thank you. Chapter 1. If you are reading this, you are going to die. Giselle put the diary back on the couch where she found it and went outside with a watering can. It was already 85 degrees, but a morning breeze was blowing out of the west, sifting fragrantly through the ravine. She breathed it in, knelt down, and peered beneath the stones that separated the garden from the lawn. She had been married and a stepmother for a month. In a bit of shade there, a tangled circle of violets was hidden, pale blue and purple, small, tender, silky, blinking. If they had voices, she thought, they would be giggling. She'd first noticed them a few days earlier, while raking dead vegetation out of the garden. That splash of color among the washed-out fallen leaves and other summer debris had caught her eye, and she knelt down and counted them, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, before covering them up again. Somehow those violets had managed to stay perfectly alive through the scorching summer weather and all through the drought, the hottest, driest summer in a century. Maybe ever. They deserved special consideration, didn't they? If God wasn't going to give it to them, she would have to. Now, every day, Giselle took the watering can outside and was always surprised to find those violets alive and tucked away in their shady crack. Still, she knew they couldn't last much longer. Even hotter, drier weather had been predicted. So that morning, after watering them, she plucked just one. She covered the others up and brought the plucked one into the house, set it in a little souvenir shot glass from Las Vegas with some cold water, placed it on the kitchen counter, and stepped back to admire it, deciding that she liked the little feminine gesture it made on the ki- in the kitchen. Mark would be home in a day, and he would appreciate such a thing, as if she were settling in, getting comfortable, starting to decorate the place as if it were her own, until she turned her back on it, headed out of the kitchen to the bedroom to make the bed, and heard it scream. A high, piercing, horrible, girlish scream that made all the little hairs on Giselle's arm rise and a cool film of sweat break out on the back of her neck. She whipped around, heart pounding, and hurried back into the kitchen, a hand covering her own mouth, to see. Of course, the violent hadn't screamed. It rested quietly where she had placed it, drooping over the side of the shot glass. If anything, it looked more defeated than it had a few seconds before, head bowed in acceptance over the shot glass, as if waiting patiently for the axe. It would never have been capable of screaming. That had been Sarah, howling at the news that Brittany Spears was dead. Thank you, Laura. Um, So, in a perfect world, with the characters here, it seems like you... um, you really use this, this, the backdrop of this terrible pandemic (laughs) and, uh, which is great because it it moves you through the the story. Like why? Well, maybe I'll ask you that first and then we can talk a little bit about the characters and how you created them. Mm -hmm. If they, um, did, did you, um, were you just thinking about like when you, before you started this project, how did it come to you? Did it come to you in some sort of way connected to this, this idea of, like what would happen if there was another epidemic? Because yeah. it's cyclical in, in mm-hmm. our his, history, right? right. Uh, yeah. I think so. Yeah, I, I think exactly. And um, I was reading a book called The Great Mortality by John Kelly, and it's a, it's a history of the plague. And, um, it, I, you know, I was reading it. I was sitting by the 
poolside <laughs> and reading about it. And what it's, a great it's a, book it's a, to bring to the pool. Yes, summer reading, and uh, and it's quite anecdotal. Not only is there a lot of history, and then some, you know, epidemiological stuff, but pretty anecdotal about the human experience of being in the middle of the Black Death. And it really made me to, you know, start that question that writers ask, what if, and thinking, what if that something like that happened here? And what if there were a, a pandemic, an epidemic, a plague that seemed to be changing the culture and society in a really significant way? And what would happen to ordinary people who uh, were in the midst of that? Um, and so I, you know, I had for a while wanted, because I have been a stepmother and I've been a stepdaughter, wanted to write about that relationship and the sort of fairy tale aspect of that, uh, both for good and ill. And, um, so I felt that, that my character, you know, putting this domestic conflict of the blended family into the midst of this plague might be a good way to, to get at some things about, I don't know, about domestic life and uh, and it's sort of smallness in the large in the you know larger context of of the political social life around it yeah because it definitely seems like this is a story of like what makes the family in some way right like, mm -hmm. like it's not as if it's just blood Right. Yeah, that Giselle has to make the family or accept the family or it grows from their being together in this crisis and having to work together. And even neighbors become part of the family in different parts of the, the story, uh -huh. it seems like. Right. And yeah. So so it's um, and so was it. um. So was was it a way to talk more? Because it's interesting that you say you've you've sort of in the back of your mind maybe had these ideas that you wanted to talk about with um, uh, being a stepmom and having been a uh, had had a stepmom. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes. Uh. <laughs> and and so is that something that that you know um, I don't know is that something that you'd been wanting to talk about and then? Well, I'm not sure. I. I yeah, I guess it's I, hard. So, as I said, it's so hard to go back and piece together what my original impulses were. The novel, I'm sure, started. I now I can't remember, but if I went back and looked at all my files, I'm sure it started with about 50 million other ideas as well, and then took, you know, d different turns and things got jettisoned, and I was left with <laughs> some <laughs> things and some, some, you know, probably the originating impulse ended up, uh, yeah, and probably ended up very far from the originating impulse. Um, I, I also was, I, I very much wanted to incorporate and use as a backdrop uh, the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales uh, for for uh, the novel, particularly there's one called Tale of a Mother. It's a very sad story, and uh, I, you know, because one Giselle would never know it. this from the novel, uh, but, oh, yeah, I guess it is mentioned, but... And, but that was very much on my mind and incorporating that and the plot of that story into the plot of this novel was something I had in mind. What What is the plot of that then, Laura? Do you mind that Hans Christian? Is that where the quote at the beginning, the branch no, is full of blossoms? No, that one comes from a different one. Um, no, uh, the story of mother, uh, mother's son is uh, dying, it seems, of an illness. He he comes home one day with wet feet and he takes ill and uh he um 
he he dies. She's at his deathbed, and she goes looking for him. And like in so many fairy tales, there are many different um, trials she has to go to before she's able to find her son from death. She doesn't get him back. It's not a happy story. <laughs> a lot of them aren't. No, <laughs> so, not those. Yeah, not no. those Hans Christian Andersen uh-huh. stories, right? Yeah. Oh, but so that was a backdrop for mm-hmm. something yeah. else. That it's not like you need that to come through to, no, to people, no one would but it's know, but yeah. me. <laughs> so, so why have now some you yeah. <laughs> now the listeners <laughs> outside the yeah. room? Why like why have something like that, Laura? Like what sort of layer does that also? give the novel or give you or is it more give you as the writer in the moment well I think you hope that if it's giving you the writer something at the moment of creation that it'll be there somehow and you know in the background that that some aspect of atmosphere or mood or uh, you know will be there uh, in in the finished product but I think really when you're writing a novel, you're so steeped for so long and so much material and so much potential material. I mean, that's the thing that a novel ends up being that uh, that's so difficult to get to is that there are so many options, so many possibilities, so many characters who don't end up in the novel, so many plot turns that don't get taken, so many um, so many details that are, are left out that I, I, at least for myself, I'm always looking for some kind of scaffolding, some sort of, I don't know, sign in the dark, <laughs> you know, come over here, follow this, you know, now we're, now we're going in this direction. So having songs or poems or tales or this sort of thing in the back of my mind, I don't know, you know, what, what ends up as residue in the novel, but for for me, it's important because I otherwise I have no I have nowhere else to go unless it's a novel based on a true story, which you know I've only written one of those, and I would say that was a little easier. <laughs> I highly recommend it if you are thinking of writing a novel. <laughs> that was a little easier. It already had an ending, so. And but otherwise, it's like this this um, Hans Christian Andersen story was sort of like a guiding principle or some sort of yeah. a, like a key to something, right. even that it's something that that you would know. It's so interesting to think that there's so many turns that are just um, have to be discarded or yeah. or 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 shaped. Do, do those ever become something else, or are those things that are just I don't know, kind of die off to the side? Which well, they probably bleak. do. I mean, there's probably there have probably been things that I've discarded in the course of writing novels, possibilities uh, that I've gone back to later in, uh, I don't know, poems or other novels. But again, you know, kind of remembering where those came from, I've never gone back and actually cannibalized anything. I've never, (laughs) because I mean, uh, there are a good 200 pages of this novel that aren't in this novel anymore, but I really, I can never go back to them and make anything from them. I mean, I, I don't feel that it's a waste. I don't, I feel like I had to write that stuff in order to get to the, to the rest of it. Um, but I, you know, I do sometimes think, well, you know, I've got hundreds of pages of, of, you know, I've got all these paragraphs. Maybe I could do something with them, but I can't. You like know, a once Frankenstein. They're over. They're over. Yeah, I piece them together or make them into something else. It doesn't work. Not to breathe yeah. life into them again, yeah, no, right? No, no, they're gone for a reason. They can't come back. Well, um, unless it's Halloween and there's some sort of a zombie, but right. then that yeah. would be a different, that would be a horror show no, all in the... Um, with, 
Laura, was it suspicious? Was it the life before her eyes that was from a true story? Or which uh, was no, the no, true story? Uh, White Bird and a Blizzard. Oh. It's a true crime. Oh, okay. I haven't I haven't read that one <laughs> yeah. of yours yet because I've read the um, the life before her eyes and be mine and boy heaven. Oh, uh-huh. well, um, this, the white bird blizzard is based on a uh, crime that happened around here. A man um, killed his wife and kept her body in the freezer in the basement for many years as people ran around looking for her. So. Uh, that's where that came from. And on the list, it falls after Suspicious River. So yes, it was that was the second, second novel. novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did you do that on purpose to try and not? Well, okay. When you're because you talked about projects, and oh, so right. I was thinking about. I wonder how they how do projects surface for you? Well, that one I had been reading about this woman and that situation and her daughter particularly. Because was she missing for a while? Mm, yeah, for years, and uh, uh, her daughter. At least according to the accounts of this, her college-age daughter had dreams that her mother was calling to her from an enclosed place and she couldn't find her. They had thought that the mother had run, that she had been told or it was finally decided after not being able to find her that the mother had run away and um, indeed she had not. Um, Well, I just, I was so interested in that story and sort of, you know, from the daughter's perspective, I just could never shake it. I, I wanted to write about it. And so, so you wrote it from the daughter's perspective, then, yeah, well, Laura, actually, for this novel. Uh, yeah, that novel? I, actually, I wanted to write it from the mother's point of view, and I wrote many, many, many pages from the mother's point of view um, before I realized, well, you can't really tell this story from the point of view of someone in a freezer. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a nice idea, but <laughs> well, as an experiment, but it wasn't. It was. It a, was a failed yeah. experiment because <laughs> so. isn't that that novel like Lovely Bones or so? Oh isn't yes, that, uh-huh, so, yeah. that, sure. So course, it would have uh-huh. to be a ghost, though, yeah. or some spirit would have had to emerge from the freezer. Right. Well, for or, various reasons, it wouldn't work with this one. But you're right. <laughs> I thought it worked really well with the lovely bones. <laughs> but so, um, and so, Laura, was that? Do you, did you consider that true crime, or did you keep um, as much to the facts? Oh in, no, it's not in true. White crime. bird in a blizzard, or facts? No, it was based on it. Yeah, that was the inspiration. Okay. So. Hmm. And then, and how did this, um, like, well, I guess you were at the pool for In a Perfect World reading about a plague. <laughs> yeah. Reading. Well, I've been um, interested in plague and plague years and plague times for a while. I don't know why. Just, I guess, the high drama of it and the, uh, I think the art that comes out of that and sort of the cultural shifts. And this this book, The Great Mortality, was very interesting because um, it just made so plausible and so I don't know, immediate, this idea of where these, where so many superstitious ideas would come from, how frightened people were, how completely clueless um, they would be about what was going to happen, why people were getting ill, how long this was going to last, why, you know, this had befallen them. Um, I just thought it, it just, to me, seemed like a really psychologically interesting situation. I guess I do feel, too, um, you know that we are so uh sort of lost in our own period of time we it's not going to be for you know a half century before people can look back and say oh this is what was happening then and what led to this and why people were acting this way and you know how these shifts came to be but instead we're just in the middle of it and just thinking about this family and how you know the the 
maternal figure at the center it was still going to have to feed the kids and you know make toast and <laughs> although all these things were happening in the larger world around her that she really only could understand based on her immediate experience which was less dramatic than um you know i mean these my idea was not that this is a kind of cataclysm like a nuclear bomb falling on a family but instead a sort of slow trickle of changes and disasters and accumulating fears and that sort of thing and that she still had to make the beds and what what that was like so yeah and cope with being um alone in a certain way that she hadn't anticipated right. that's an, yeah. an interesting uh-huh. aspect yeah well i really well, wanted my, her to be oh. a kind of cinderella who'd been swept away but um but then uh you know the the romantic ideal of her imaginings turned out to be something else but i thought but i wanted it to be a positive thing too she she's left with something good i think in the in the form of this family yeah not what she expected no. necessarily no. but something yeah it definitely gives you the feeling of something positive it does um, let's take a short break okay. on that positive note okay. since we've been talking <laughs> right. about plays. Sounds good. <laughs> and, but as a writer, it seems like it's you say that you kind of go towards these moments of high drama right, and yeah. things that are psychologically interesting. And so I think that's an interesting way to look at the the fiction and and maybe these. I, I wish I wish you had one of those short pieces. Do you did you bring your notebook? No. Uh, uh, okay, maybe next time. <laughs> <laughs> a living writer's scoop. <laughs> We're going to take a short break. We'll be back to. Today, Laura Kasishki, I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Laura Kosischke. Um, her latest we've been talking about is a novel, In a Perfect World. Um, now we might shift gears a little bit. Oh, but before we do, <laughs> um, everyone's going to have like a, a whiplash <laughs> with my interaction, introduction here. But Laura will be reading November 3rd at Borders on Lower Road uh, near Target. So that'll be November 3rd. You can see Laura in person. Um, read, and you'll read just part of the, the novel and then... Sign books, maybe? Sign yeah, books? Okay. <laughs> Field questions? <laughs> right. No, just to read. <laughs> um, okay. Well, Laura, when you do you have um, multiple projects going on at the same time? Since you are like a, a fiction writer and a, and, and a poet, and um, do you write essays too? No, do you, uh, really, I don't. why 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 not because why not i don't know uh i don't uh i just don't have that impulse i mean i guess we could ask anybody why don't they write anything (laughs) yeah i don't uh, mean to (laughs) imply that you should (laughs) i don't know i don't have i have done so before when i taught at warren wilson we gave lectures and they were generally in essay form and so i did i have written some essays I just, um, I don't know. I don't. Ha- I feel. I feel. I don't have a nonfiction voice. Maybe something will happen to me someday, and I'll have an idea. But I, I, I otherwise, I just feel like I'm just more comfortable it, 
with the with forms with uh with personas and forms because it seems like because then you can because you talked about in these new pieces that you're writing too you're taking risks and that seems important to you and examining things of um like the psychological nature maybe with the essays that's a different kind of voice because it's coming from some I don't know I wonder if like like where you're saying this is this is what I this is what I know or this is like some sort of different um authority or something or maybe not well I think it is I think there is a sense of authority that I maybe I don't have instead of imagination or so I'd I'd rather be surprised by uh things I haven't thought of before than to try to express things that have happened to me or that I have thought of, I guess. <laughs> um, I, I find that in writing nonfiction of any kind, which I, you know, I have done, but not very successfully, that there's a little less room for association, which to me is kind of my MO, you know, one idea leads to another one image makes me think of another image. Um, you know, things take turns I don't expect and the writing process is kind of a a process of thinking and discovering what the next thing that can happen or might happen would be Um, and I just I haven't quite I haven't figured not quite I haven't at all (laughs) figured out how to do that with nonfiction. well because it almost seems like if you're you know writing a, a novel you said you'd wanted to talk just to go back to this one example Laura about like like being a stepmother then maybe somebody else might have written it as a a creative nonfiction piece, whereas you're you're just looking into right. it through the lens of a story, like yeah. with fiction, or I don't know, maybe I don't well, know. Also, maybe I just haven't felt that my life was that tremendously interesting. I mean, my experience as a stepmother, my stepdaughter was really nice. I liked her a lot. She didn't have no a, drama there. No, she <laughs> never did anything very evil to me or at all evil. Uh, my stepmother's very nice. <laughs> I'm really glad she was in my life. So uh, the high drama has to come from somewhere outside my life. I guess. Right. <laughs> from the imagination. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I kind of can, because I've had those experiences, I can imagine, you know, I've come close enough to high drama and it's situations that I can imagine full-blown drama, but I haven't gotten there in a way that I think is interesting enough for nonfiction. And I'm rather hoping that I won't. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> well, and, and writing in the, the poems, what sort of... Um, what does because that might be a, a way of of saying about things that are more right. immediate mm-hmm. to your own experience yeah. uh, well i i mean in my poetry i am dealing usually i guess um with actual experience with life experience my own experience but i think that it's a matter of there being music to it or form or um and also the freedom, which one doesn't have, as we've learned from various memoirists recently who've made things up, uh, that the, one has the freedom in a poem to say things, to outrageous things that never did happen or to, um, you know, take things in directions that uh, are unanticipated. And, uh, and I like that freedom. I don't. I feel I don't have that enough in real life to say absurd things in public or do act oddly. Um, I I wouldn't want to constrain myself in my writing to sticking to the facts. 
And I'm very much hoping to escape this life without having anything so dramatic or interesting happening to me that it would make a good book. <laughs> so. Okay. But in the poems, things are, um, I think things are always happening to the, the spe- there seems to be, at least in the, the two books that we have um, today on the table, literally, Gardening in the Dark and Lilies Without, that seems, um, can you tell us about, is there, is there a voice that goes through these books, Laura, that's, um, that's actually you speaking? <laughs> I know that sounds terribly obvious, but what, or maybe it's not like what, um, well, I mean, they're all, I suppose, I mean, most of these poems are first person. They are lyric poems. Uh, there is an I, however, um, I mean, you'd ask me to read a poem, so maybe I could read one and then talk about it a little bit. Uh, yeah, if you don't mind, no, if if you will indulge me, that would be great. (laughs) Um, this poem world peace a day like a mayfly on which someone slammed a bible all exoskeletal radiance and insignificance in the dark we find ourselves the only mother and child who decided it was wise in this storm impending crisis to come to the county fair sheep among strangers one lone pony tethered to a pole the prize pig speaks eloquently in his sleep on the tired subject of world peace And the devil, who owns all this fairness outright, sits in a chair over there by the fence and lets his dog sniff around at the air. Briefly, it's air made from the kind of paper the repo men roll through the halls of the house to keep the mud on their boots from ruining your rugs on the day they stomp in and out with all the things you ever bought on credit, which, in the end, was everything you had. As my grandma used to say, we're going to have some weather. But at the moment, like petals, a soft spray of spit, We are made of it, and love, that slut, just runs around deep-kissing everyone. So why are we blind to her wild suppositions 99% of the time? Or does love generally never love us quite this much? Well, might it suffice it to say today I am struck dumb by the laughable notion of numbers, the whole hilarious idea of greed, and the absurdity of feeling anything but peace flies right over my head like a flock of alarm clocks on the breeze. Yes, Grandma, God rest your soul, we will definitely have some weather. But for now, the rides are quiet, the fun house is free, there are no lines, and at every gate a patient man or woman waits for our tickets with an open hand and a smile. So the the voice in this poem, I would say, in some ways, I mean, although... <clears throat> heightened <laughs> uh, is is my voice and the I and the experience actually happened to me. My son and I went to the Chelsea Fair. It was about to rain. We were the only people who <laughs> seemed to think that that would be a good idea. <laughs> so, um, and of course, uh, the things that I saw: the pig, the sheep, uh, the the man waiting for um, our tickets. All of that was actual. But of course, the man waiting for our tickets wasn't the devil, <laughs> and the pig probably wasn't dreaming of world peace um but so so the poem although it's based in reality it also has this imaginative room for me to um sort of take impressions i i mean i think 
again, I can't recall exactly, but I think my initial inspiration for the poem had to do with the atmosphere of the t- of the thing, of having gone to this fair and feeling like, you know, what is this, the end of the world or something? Why are we the only people here? And that there was a storm coming, but it hadn't come yet. And this sense of impending... I don't know, doom, but that at the same time that things had a touch of the macabre about them, this fair, these animals, these people, our solitariness there, it also seemed hopeful and fun, and I was happy to be there. And so, which to me, you know, if I'm going to just keep sort of, I don't know, improvising on this, seems a little bit like many uh, scenes I've experienced in life, where at the same time that that things seemed... um, sort of tinged with with mortality and with the morbid, also sort of uh, more intense and lovely in some ways because of that. So that's sort so for me that's that's the the eye in the poems, yes, and the experiences often they they're just as as uh, I I describe them, <laughs> except that I'm exploring them as I describe them. Yeah, and it's actually, and the, and, and the pig was going to have this dream of world peace right. somehow. It just seemed right. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, it's, and, and it's it's great because it becomes like there is going to be some weather and there's this grandmother's voice that, right. that you allow in. So it's this person that's gone that, we, you know, later on you find out. It's really, it's it's amazing because not only is it the, the storm, but then it's like love could be mm-hmm. part of that. That weather, yeah, as I well, so too, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And the sense that we were all in this together—that you know, here we here we all were, and we didn't know what was going to happen next. But they were letting us on the rides for free because no one else was there, <laughs> and no one was going to come there. And there was something in the in the solitude of it that was uh, sort of touching. And yeah, that, that line of strange, the strangeness, of course, is what it's all really about. Yeah. Yeah, wouldn't, and wouldn't it be strange if there was world peace too? Sadly, yes. uh-huh, <laughs> but right. um, but yeah, and I love that line: "Sheep among strangers." because yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's right after you introduce yourself and your son. Yes. And so <laughs> it's this moment where that could be like you guys, these lone, and then you realize it's the animals that you're going to start ta- <laughs> seeing at the right. fair. Uh-huh. So really. Yeah, really nice moment. Um, so is that the book, um, Gardening in the, the Dark, Laura, which was, because remind me, that was in 2007 with Us Sable Press, right? Uh, uh, 2004. Two th- oh, 2004. And so Lilies Without is the more recent one. That's 2007. Uh, oh, excuse me. So Lilies Without is the one, is that the one that got mentioned as like a must-read book of the summer? Oh, what? in Time Magazine? Yes. Yeah, that was odd. Uh-huh. Yeah. Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah, no, that was really unusual. <laughs> only, I think only during National Poetry Month would such a thing ever happen. I think that must have been what it was. Well, thank goodness for April. Yes, uh-huh. Right? Yeah, uh-huh. Because, yeah, Time Magazine actually gave, and it was in with other, was it with other poetry books? Because now it's a, a couple of years yes, ago now uh-huh. when... Um, but but it was was it or was it the only poetry book? I feel like it was in a, a list of books. I don't know. Well, all then, I can remember and... is that Darth Vader was on the cover of it, and my son dragged that. <laughs> he was very into Star Wars. He could care less about Mom's review, and uh, he wouldn't let me have the magazine back because it had Darth Vader on the cover. <laughs> <He died. laughs> so. Well, you know what? I think I have like a, a media photocopy of the article, so I can give that to you <laughs> okay. after this. That'll be your prize. I, think I might have snuck it back finally, but. <laughs> 
Oh, well, Laura, would you like to read um, another poem and then maybe we'll take a short break and, and, and come back? Because it would be great to hear one. Uh, I'd be happy to. Um, okay. And this is from Lilies Without. This is from Ostable's Press's 2007 release. I'm the coward who did not pick up the phone. I'm the coward who did not pick up the phone so as never to know. So many clocks and yardsticks dumped into an ocean. I am the ox which drew the cart full of urgent messages straight into the river, emerging none the wiser on the opposite side, never looking back at all those floating envelopes and postcards, the wet ashes of some loved one's screams. How was I to know? I am the warrior who killed the sparrow with a cannon. I am the guardian who led the child by the hand into the cloud and emerged holding only an empty glove. Oh, the digital ringing of it, the string of a kite of it, which I let go of. Oh, the commotion in the attic of it, in the front yard, in the backyard, in the driveway, all of which I heard nothing of, because I am the one who closed the windows and said, this has nothing to do with us. In fact, I am the one singing this so loudly I cannot hear you even now. Mama, what's happening outside? Honey, is that the phone? I am the one who sings the bones and shells of us, the organic broth of us, the zen gong of us, oblivious, oblivious, oblivious. Thank you. That was Laura Kasischke reading um, from Lilies Without um, from Osable Press. I'm T. Hetzel. We're going to take a short break and be back. Um, we've also been talking about Laura's latest novel, In a Perfect World, with, out with Harper Perennial. Hot off the press, actually. We'll be back. If you're just joining us, you're in luck because you've still got 15 minutes with Laura Kasischke, our writer today on Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, we've been talking about In a Perfect World, Laura's latest novel, um, and we just heard poems from Lilies Without and Gardening in the Dark. Um, and now we're back. Laura, thanks so much for being on the show today. My it, pleasure. Really, um, and Laura will be reading November 3rd at Borders. Um, so so check check that out. Put that on your calendar. Do you know what time it is? Today? 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock mm-hmm. at Borders. Okay. Um, all right. Well, Laura, um, we've been talking about some of, some of your poems and, and writing fiction. And when... When did you start writing? Like, were you like a wee lass when you? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> like, yeah. what happened? Like, tell, when did you start writing, and when did you have that? I I'm a writer feeling. Well, I mean, I I had that I'm a writer feeling when I was pretty young, but I also had that I'm a tap dancer feeling, and that didn't work out so well. <laughs> so, but I um. I, you know, I remember writing when I was really little, but it, I think it had to do with the fact that I loved to read, and I think that might have had to do with my being an only child and um, have, not having a ton of other things to do. So I, I love to read, and at some point, I think um, reading made me think, well, maybe I could do this, or I could tell a story, or this, you know, or this, I like this poem, maybe I could write a poem, and gave me the the impulse to try and then of course when you're a kid 
third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, that sort of thing, and you write poems, you get a lot of, uh, you know, I don't know, support for that, a lot of <laughs> kudos. So, so you were uh, writing it's poems. It's quiet, it's clean, you know, <laughs> keeps you out of the way. <laughs> so did you have little notebooks or journals? Oh, I or did. What I did? had a lot of little notebooks and journals. And I did had... they have horses on the cover, like in a, like no, a sunset? No, I was never into horses. Or I no, never no, liked okay. horses. <laughs> okay, okay. Kittens, probably. Kittens. kittens and flowers, that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, for a long time, I had those diaries that you can lock and that sort of thing. And I don't know, I really, I had nothing very secret to say in my diaries for a long time, but I would hide them anyway. We had, there was a cold air duct and I would go down into that and hide the diary when it's locked, although. With that little tin lock. With a little tin lock that would have been very easy to open. Um, But I had that and then I had notebooks too and. I just, I, I always liked to write. And you started writing poems. And it was it because you were reading books of poems back then or you had come across them at school, Laura? Or how did, I, or did it just start? Like without even, it was just a poem. Well, I think my mom might, must have read poems to me. I think she liked poetry. I mean, she didn't have really, you know, very specific tastes in poetry or anything but I think she liked poetry poetry liked to read poetry to me I think I had a lot of little storybooks that had poems in them they weren't tremendously sophisticated poems or anything um and then uh, the only the only other thing I can remember is in fifth grade we had a poetry writing project and we had to put together our own little anthology of poems and I liked that so I, I put together my little anthology and that's the first time I think I was in fifth grade and it had to do with that project that I remember lying in bed and um, and having to get out of bed to go write something down because I had thought of a poem in my head and and just really I mean I, that's the point at which too I've with students I've noticed, you know, undergraduates or even younger kids, that sort of thing, where people get pretty addicted to writing when you have that experience of feeling really seized by inspiration and you want that to happen again and it doesn't happen all the time, but you're you're looking for that. And so I think at that point I thought, oh, this is this is a really fun, great thing, very absorbing, completely, you know, takes you completely out of your own world and into this other one but that's also yours. <laughs> and as I said, it's clean and quiet and your parents like it. <laughs> so. you, but the things that you, that you choose to write about aren't quiet things. No, they aren't, are they? Maybe that was my subversive. <laughs> yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll be sitting in here writing, but you won't like it if you see it. <laughs> It'll be very shocking to you if you read it. <laughs> So, but I don't think the shocking material really started. I mean, if we could even call it that compared to so many other people's writings, but um, until high school. And then I, I do think, uh, well, I, I was just real attracted to the whole, uh, you know, the, the, you know, dismal literature, <laughs> murder and suicide and terror. And, uh, and so to me, that was the interesting stuff. I, I, I got the Greek tragedies. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't ever really like funny stuff or characters who warmed my heart with their <laughs> wise decisions. I liked people jumping off bridges. <laughs> so uh, that was, so. So that's what you started writing about. I did. In some I think ways. Early on. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that gets you a different kind of attention in high school. So sort of moving from, I don't know, I think, well, I think because I graduated from high school in 1980, and I think that whole 70s period, we were still 
very much into the, you know, after school special, uh, very sensitive teens. With moral with lessons. With moral <laughs> lessons who were suffering terribly, even though we had really very little to suffer over. <laughs> so I fit right in. <laughs> and and Laura, when um, when did you give up tap dancing? Oh, well, very or early. have you not? I shouldn't uh, assume. No, no. <laughs> I mean, no you just, assumed correctly. Since you're not on this uh, stage my, professionally doesn't mean. <laughs> my last tap dancing performance was <laughs> when I was in high school, actually. And it was the, my last one was the, a disastrous one. And I decided to give that up. What it's, happened? You, How could that be a disaster? Have I mean, you ever tap the... danced tea? No. <laughs> it's unbelievably difficult. And if you ever meet anyone who can, they really deserve your respect because it's very difficult. And I, I can't do it. <laughs> I'm sure I would injure myself now if I even tried. So, yeah, because what? Who is that? That that dancer? It's not Fred Astaire. Gene Kelly. Oh yeah. So mm-hmm. he's like a a tap dancer. Like he. I guess so. Like he I could do it, right? I guess so. I don't know. Well, here we are talking about Gene <laughs> <Yes>. Kelly <laughs> and an American in Paris, which leads me to say you are big in France. So what's that like? Because that, if you look up Wikipedia, Laura Kosicki, big in France. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I have a really good publisher in France, and apparently I've I don't I don't read French, so I don't know. But I apparently have excellent translators, um, and the books have done well i've been brought over there on numerous occasions and uh so it's it's been odd and nice to sort of have these friends in france (laughs) which i you know just made through writing so and so it's multiple translators laura that's kind of interesting to think of yeah uh most of the novels i've had the same translator but uh two of them have been i've had two different translators and both of them i i mean I've heard are really great ones. That's strange to think that it, the book almost has a new life again. Yes, uh-huh, yeah. That's distant from, it's almost like having, is it, well, I imagine it might be like having your book made into a movie. Is that, because you also had that with The Life Before Her Eyes was right. made into a film. Was Yeah. Well, the difference is that I could see the movie. I can't read French. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, there is this odd this odd sort of disconnect you'd write something and you know you're a, I don't know alone in your room or thinking about it uh, in your car jotting things down completely your imagination and then they go off into the world and they become something else um which it, it is a very strange and pretty gratifying i mean it's a it's a pretty gratifying when i went to the set of the uh, the life before eyes when they were filming the movie it was uh, i you know, kind of kept thinking to myself with a start every once in a while, oh, they're wearing clothes that I kind of thought of in my head (laughs) and saying things that I just made up and all these people running around with cameras and and learning lines that I, which seemed pretty miraculous. And it's the same thing to have a a novel translated and read in another language in another country and another culture. And, uh, but I mean, it's no, it's, I mean, just maybe, it's different, not even really a grander scale or something, but it's just a, a different sort of experience of the same thing that I think we're, we're all, or most of us, are writing for, which is, here here I am, and I, you know, can you hear me? Are you listening? What do you think of what I'm saying? Just that urge to communicate, that urge to sort of transcend your own experience and, and speak to someone else. Yeah. 
I'd say it's a, I mean, it's a very similar experience to, to reading where, you know, you're, you're sharing someone else's consciousness. You're participating in something that, you know, you don't really get to do on a daily basis, really get into someone else's mind, see what that person's take on things might be in the, you know, the deepest recesses in the subconscious. That's and, a really brave thing. And to be moved by it. That's, well, I, I don't think of it, um, you know, I don't think of it as very brave either. I mean, when we were talking before about subject matter and uh, sort of, um, you know, difficult or racy or shocking material, that sort of thing. When I'm writing, I never think to myself, I'm never thinking, oh, you know, T is going to read this someday <laughs> or anyone's <laughs> going to read it or it's going to be published. Or So it really isn't brave. <laughs> I, and, it's uh, just about what you're making yeah, in the moment. It's just in the and moment. The, the... And really, it's between me and, but but also I can't kid myself that there isn't that hope. It's at some level that, okay, I'm not just doing this for me. This won't just end up on, under the bed. This will, you know this will go beyond me somehow otherwise I would just think it instead of write it yes yeah it do, it does seem like yeah it I didn't mean to say oh well it's it's brave because in a way it can only be brave if you're not the one that's considering doing it because sometimes even if somebody says well you're going to move across the country people will be like oh that's brave and it's like no that's just what I want to do so right. that you don't mm-hmm. weigh it that way but when you talk about having like I'm here these are my ideas uh, what do you think of the world when you were saying that Laura yeah. I was that's what I was struck by and then is sort of struck dumb because I was just said yeah afterwards because I was thinking about right. well, what that takes. But I would say too that the writing process and you know leading to the publishing process, reading to leading to you know someone reading it and responding to it process is such a lengthy one. I mean the 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 time and space between having an idea for a novel (laughs) putting some of the ideas on the page and having it turn into a book that you know has been read by someone else it's such a slow process there's really no room for bravery in it (laughs) it's not like oh i'm gonna go save this person who's in a fire (laughs) there's there's no it's very very slow and you could back out at any time (laughs) so i wouldn't it's not brave (laughs) but it definitely feels like you have to have a lot of determination to see it through In well, some I way, so. and believe yeah. in it, uh-huh, right. right? Right, or or I think you know, and I've, uh, you know, I always think of Flannery O'Connor talking about the habit of art, and that you know, really writers and artists are what they do on a daily basis, and you know, that just making writing.